0: Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. I meet these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Ben Masters. Ben is a filmmaker and conservationist whose work explores some of the most important conservation challenges facing the American West today. He was a mastermind of the award-winning documentary Unbranded, which tells the story of Ben and three of his buddies who ride wild Mustangs from Mexico to Canada as part of an epic five-month adventure. The film also examines the Bureau of Land Management's Wild Horse Program, a well-intentioned but now controversial government program created to protect wild horses that roam the western U.S., For those who love the American West, Unbranded is one of the best documentaries in recent memory. It combines an hardcore adventure with important conservation issues, all while accurately capturing the true beauty of the American West. Conservation is the common theme running through all of Ben's work, and his passion is fortified with a deep knowledge of natural history, public lands, and current policy issues related to the American West. His expertise earned him a spot on the BLM's Wild Horse and Borough Advisory Board, the group task was solving the challenging issues surrounding the program that he explored in his documentary Unbranded. His most recent film, Pronghorn Revival, is the story of Texas wildlife biologists capturing and relocating a struggling herd of pronghorns. Not one to rest on his laurels, Ben is working hard on more conservation projects to be revealed in the coming months. When we recorded this episode, Ben was less than a day away from leaving on a multi-week guiding trip to the area around Yellowstone National Park, so, I really appreciated him making the time to chat. In just under an hour, we managed to cover a wide range of conservation related topics. We obviously talked about his films, but then we got into depth on the BLM's Wild Horse program as well as his new appointment to the advisory board. We talked about invasive species in the American West. We talked about Ben's thoughts on hunting, and then we got into some of Ben's personal background, and we talked about some of his favorite books, favorite documentaries. And he even told us a crazy story about stampeding horses, with plenty of other interesting subjects thrown in along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to check out the documentary Unbranded. It's on Netflix, and you'll love it. But in the meantime, enjoy my conversation with Ben Masters. so the way i've been starting out these interviews when i when i speak with folks is the i ask them when you meet someone what do you tell them you do for a living because i know you wear about five or six different hats so i'd be interested to hear your your answer to that question
1: i work really hard to play all the time
0: <laughs> that makes sense i think you've uh, <laughs> you, you've got it figured out
1: <laughs> i'm good at what i do
0: um yeah well before we we start talking about your filmmaking stuff Kind of tell them what you've got coming. Tell everybody what you got coming up, because just before we started recording, you were telling me your long list of things you're going to be doing in the next maybe two months. So run through that just to make everybody real jealous.
1: Um, you know, I guess next two months I've got uh, I do pack trips in Yellowstone National Park. I I teamed up with an outfitter there, uh, Yellowstone Adventures, and. We take people on eight day pack trips uh, through Yellowstone and look at the bison herds and uh, you know the wildlife and, and the thermals and the hot springs. And I mean, it's just my favorite way to see Yellowstone. Uh, doing a, a few you know, film gigs, uh, one of them is going to be on a guy that drew a a sheep license in Montana and we're going to take in horses and I'm going to be in charge of the horses for that. And I sit on the BLM's wild horse and burrow advisory board. So I'm going to be spending a week out there trying to figure out the solution to the wild horse um, disaster that's going on right now. And then we've got a handful of short films that uh, we're releasing. We actually released one of them the day before yesterday with Yeti called Promhorn Revival. Yeah, I just I saw that. that. It was
0: really, really well done. That was awesome.
1: Oh, thanks, man. Glad you liked it. Then we've got uh, two more short films that we're going to release in October and we're going to do a really big premiere party in Austin on October 20th. Uh, then I write a few... Uh, blogs and columns for different places so yeah a little bit a little bit of everything it's play outside a lot though yeah well
0: the, the way I came across you initially was through your film unbranded which I thought was just just about as good as it gets if for somebody who loves the West and is interested in conservation issues and um, I, mean, I thought it was just a, a great adventure it would have been an awesome adventure without the filmmaking part of it but then the fact that you were able to film it, and presented in such a, a great way that even people who don't know anything about horses or don't know anything about the West love it. Um, could you just maybe describe that film? So, for people who haven't seen and I encourage anybody who has not just to immediately go watch it. And I'll, I'll have links to all of that on the webpage, but can you just kind of give an overview of that adventure and that film? And, and then maybe we can talk a little about the BLM's Wild Horse Program?
1: Sure. Um, so, Unbranded is a documentary that we made in 2013, three buddies and I finished school at Texas A&M and before we, you know, moved on with our lives or whatever, we decided to take a few months for ourselves and kind of complete this this dream that that we've always done. so we adopted some horses from the Bureau of Land Management, some, some wild horses, some Mustangs, and we worked with uh, two guys to train them, and uh, we spent a few months training the horses, and then we rode from uh, the Mexico-Arizona border through Arizona, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming and Montana to the Canadian border, um, through public lands in the West and tried to find, you know, as backcountry back country of a route as we possibly could. And it took about, uh, took a little bit over five months.
0: So how did you even come up with that idea? Cause I, like I was saying, that would be a, a massive undertaking no matter what. And then, to try to film it and then produce a a big time documentary at the same time. That's, that's a huge undertaking. So where did the idea come from?
1: Uh, Tequila.
0: (laughs) A lot of good ideas come from that. Well, not good ideas, but ideas, I guess some good, some bad.
1: Yeah, I think that was my most ambitious tequila idea. And it turned out to be a really good one.
0: So had you ever done any long distance trips like that in the, uh, b- before this? I mean, what was the longest trip you'd done leading up to this?
1: Yeah, I have. It, it kind of, it actually, it actually did all start with tequila, but it started with tequila like three years before that. So, um, uh, yeah, three years before that, I, I dropped out of college and, um, uh, one of my best pals at AM we did the Connell Divide Trail. Yep. And we, uh, we did that with Mustangs as well. We didn't have a film crew or anything like that. But we did that trip and we finished it and we looked back on it and thought, man, if we had filmed that, people would want to watch it because – we had a bunch of really interesting things happen to us. Um, and then that kind of started the idea of doing another trip and going all the way from Mexico to Canada uh, and kind of incorporating the story of the wild horses into the story of going from Mexico to Canada. And that, that is um, unbranded. We actually pulled it off, which is looking back kind of, kind of crazy.
0: Yeah, it, it, was a, um, it was a super film, like I keep saying. So for people who don't know anything about the Wild Horse Program, can you give a little bit of um, overview of that and then maybe talk about your, your recent role on the advisory board?
1: Sure. Um, so, you know, wild horses, um, you know, it's kind of important to get a bigger scale context of what they are and where they came from. But, you know, geologically speaking, on the, on the big scale of things, uh, horses evolved in North America and went extinct uh, about the time that uh, humans came into North America. They went extinct along with, you know, other really cool animals like mastodons and woolly mammoths and saber-toothed cats and you know, the short-nosed bear, and, uh, before they went extinct, though, they crossed over into Asia via the Bering Land Strait and, uh, were domesticated by, uh, I think the most famous is probably the Mongols who, you know, then proceeded to use horses to create the largest continuous empire, you know, in the history of the world under Genghis Khan. Yep. And, uh, you know, they obviously people saw the light then and they were like, wow, this is so much better than walking. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody caught on and, and, you know, Europeans used, them, um, and they kind of speciated out from there. Like the ones in Europe's were a little bit bigger and, uh, better suited for colder climates. And, you know, the ones in the middle East, the, the Arabs, they, uh, were shorter and faster and, uh, you know, amazing endurance and then with the European uh, exploration or invasion, depending on who you ask, uh, of the Americas, they brought uh, horses back over and uh, I think it was 1519 was whenever Cortez you know, first first brought him. Yep. And uh, you know that was one of the major reasons why he was able to, to take over uh, to Nautztlan was because he had these really amazing animals that nobody had ever seen before, and like swords and stuff, and they thought he was a god. Mm-hmm. And then you know, as the Spanish explored, they lost some horses. Some horses escaped, and uh, you know, became feral or wild, whichever terminology you want to use. And they populated all over, uh, North America, you know, to such an extent that, uh, you know, 200 years or so later, whenever Lewis and Clark went out there, all the native American tribes already had horses that they were using. So that's how fast they, they caught on and how fast they populated. Yep. And then, uh, You know, you had the Calvary that went out west, they took their horses, the farmers took their horses, Uh, the Russians brought horses. You know, everybody kind of added to the genetic mixture of of all these horses that were living out on these western landscapes. And, uh, you know, that's kind of where Mustangs came from. It's just kind of a mix of, of all the different species of horses that came into the United States. And, uh, you know, as the West was settled, um, you know, the, the, the wild or the feral horse numbers, you know, diminished as there was more and more people. And then, you know, World War I and World War II, they did a lot of roundups to use them for, uh, well, World War I, they sent a lot of them to Europe to actually use for fighting. Mm-hmm. And then World War one and World War two they used a lot of them for, for food and then you know their numbers continued to diminish until um, the passage of the wild horse and Burrow wild free roaming horse and Burrow Act which protected uh, wild horses on uh, I think it was about 50 million acres of land I need I don't have my notes in front of and me. And
0: that was post-World War II? Yeah, that was
1: 1971. Oh, okay, okay. And so that, that passed, and everybody was like, yeah, cool, we, we passed it, we saved it, wonderful act. But it was not well thought at, at all. And uh, they didn't put any type of provisions on, you know, well, what's going to happen whenever there's too many horses, or what's going to happen whenever they, you know, continue to reproduce. And... uh so under protection you know the horses uh increased and to the point where people were like wait a minute like it's cool that we have wild horses but we don't want them to be overpopulated and and damaging your angel land and making it to where you know the livestock industry can't make a living or where uh you know the native wildlife can't make a living so they uh started doing these roundups where they would gather the horses and then uh, put them up for adoption or sell them. And uh, they still do that today. Whenever there's too many horses, the BLM is supposed to go out there and round them up. Uh, And then, well, let's see here. Where am I at? So yeah, that, that occurred through about the year 2000 or so. And then, Somebody had this brilliant idea of saying, like, "Oh, well, you know, if we can't find a good adopter, we can just put it into a long-term holding pen," and that's continued to happen until right now. Uh, there are about fifty thousand wild horses and burros that are living in holding pens, and their feed bill is about fifty million bucks a year. Wow! And BLM is completely out of money, and They uh, don't have the budgets for doing roundups or anything like that, and they've allowed the population in the wild to uh, increase to the point where it's about two and a half times over the appropriate management level. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, nobody has any type of solution that is publicly acceptable or politically acceptable, and it's just this massive disaster right now of what in the world do we do with all these horses?
0: So they, they brought you in to be on the advisory board to try to help you figure out this very simple problem. Is that right?
1: Uh, yeah.
0: So what do you think? I mean, if you had it your way, what would you do? What's the answer? I mean, I know there is no, no simple answer that'll make everybody happy, but if, I mean, if you could do it your way, what do you, what, what would you propose?
1: Well, you know, I like to think of, of a of a problem solution based going backwards. Mm-hmm. So, you know what what is the best, um, most humane and honorable solution for for these horses? You know, in in twenty or thirty years, where do we want the program to be? Yep um I personally think that the appropriate management level is probably a little bit too low uh, you know the appropriate management level is 25,000 uh, I don't know what number it should be but I, I think that's a little bit low especially you know some of the herds uh, you know they're far outnumbered by livestock so I, I think you could probably go up on the AML a little bit but I, I And once again, this is in my opinion, and after all the interviews and people that we've talked to, you know, right now there's about 67,000 horses. uh, And I think that's probably too many considering the amount of range that they have. And, you know, it's undeniable that large herbivores can overgraze the landscape. And we're seeing that in places where, you know, horses are six, eight, ten times over the appropriate management level. Yep. We're also seeing it in places where there's too many elk and where there's too many cattle. You know, sure. it's not just horses. Like anytime you have too many mouths to feed and you run out of food, uh, there's going to be ecological consequences. Yep. So uh, you know, the ultimate goal, you know, twenty, thirty years from now, is, in my opinion, to have horses at the appropriate management level, whether that's twenty five thousand, whether that's thirty five thousand you know, that's, that's kind of hard to decide, but to actually, you know, stay there and the way that I would like to see it stay there is for different volunteer organizations to volunteer their time to do, uh, birth control. You know, you can go out there and shoot them with dart guns yep. and stop having babies. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty humane, you know, like you're not going to Unless you like shoot one in the eyeball or something, uh, the risk of hurting one is is really low, yep and then uh, and then you know that horse is able to have its normal hormone cycling and behave like a wild horse, et cetera, and it's an honorable lifestyle and I mean let's be honest, like who doesn't want to go shoot wild horses with dark guns <laughs> <laughs> who, so
0: who uh are there groups that oppose that because that seems like a very simple humane way to do it and I'm assuming there are groups that that don't think that?
1: Yeah, there are. There's there's this organization, uh, Friends of Animals, right now that is actually filing a lawsuit against the BLM to not be able to use humane birth control treatment. Uh, And, yeah, so also anytime that anybody tries to do anything with wild horses, there's like 15 different organizations that sue the BLM. Mm -hmm. And... They all complain about the BLM not being able to do anything, and they all file lawsuits against the BLM. So, like, the BLM can't even do a study. They, they're Like, right now, they're trying to do a study to see if it's humane or safe to uh, spay horses, yeah. like dogs and cats. And there's, like, 10 organizations uh, that are suing them right now. Like, they can't even do research. Um, so, it's just, it's just a complete mess and uh, no politicians want to deal with it because no matter what they do there's going to be all these people that start hating on them you know if they say anything good or say like wow these horses are so wonderful like look how beautiful they are the cattle industry is like well screw them you know there's too many of them and the wildlife people are like you know it's an invasive species they don't belong on western landscapes Uh, and if they say anything about how you know, livestock should belong in the West, or whatever. They get, you know, hated on on social media and stuff by uh, wild horse activist organizations, and it's just created this this culture of gridlock and do nothing type of attitude, um, which is the absolute worst thing that can possibly happen.
0: Yeah, if you're if you're in the business of being reelected, there's really not much upside in, in wading into that unless you're just really brave. Have you seen any? Have there been any elected public officials you, that you've seen that you've been proud of the way they've worked? Like, they're not, they're not scared to dive in, or have they all been kind of disappointing?
1: Uh, well, I just now started on the advisory board, so I haven't gotten to, to talk to many elected officials yeah. on you know, really getting involved. Um, so I, I don't have any experience in that regard to give you a good answer.
0: Sure. Well, that'll be interesting to see, because I'm sure that there are some some politicians or even, you know, people that, that work for the government that aren't scared by public opinion. But they're going to be the exception of the rule. So I, uh, I applaud you for, for wading into that because it's uh, that's going to be a challenge. But, yeah, that's, yeah, I get hate mail
1: you know, all the time. Do you really? Oh, my God. Yes.
0: From like in animal rights people or from all sides?
1: From animal rights people.
0: Well, the way I look at it is if it weren't for humans, those horses would be getting devoured by wolves while they're halfway alive. And so I think a, a dart with some birth control is a much better alternative than the natural alternative. You know, if anything, they've, I don't know, it's not my business, I guess.
1: <laughs> I mean, wolves, wolves don't predate on horses, though. And there's no, like, the the wolf population overlap and the, the horse population, I mean— they don't overlap. Uh, okay, that makes sense. Like there's no there's no predators for 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 horses yeah,
0: because they're they're all they're they're not naturally they haven't been here in twenty thousand years or whatever. I got you. Yeah, um, I mean
1: whenever they whenever they existed in North America, you know we had we had saber toothed cats, we had sure. cheetahs that could run like sixty miles an hour. We had all this really cool megafauna. Uh, carnivores, you know, short nosed bear. They were like two freaking tons, you know, awesome, awesome, awesome animals. And they're gone now. Yeah. So they're and, gone as well. You know, <laughs> like you can't act like it's the year 20,000 AD. We have to embrace <laughs> the fact that humans have unquestionably changed the planet. And now it's our job, um, uh, as stewards to try to, to try to, you know, preserve biodiversity to the best of our abilities really in my opinion
0: yeah well you're obviously really passionate about conservation and i feel like there's a thread of conservation in, in everything you do you know you even you know your most recent film um, pronghorn revival and then obviously unbranded and you're involved in all this um one question I've been asking folks that are involved in conservation is what does the word conservation mean to you? Because I think it, it has different meanings to different people you know, all over the world. It can mean environmental stuff or it can mean conserving a certain species. So what, is it, what does the word conservation mean to you?
1: It's best been defined to me and the definition that I use was given to me by a professor that made a profound impact on my life guy named Douglas Slack at Texas A&M, he said that conservation is the wise use of natural resources. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful definition and, and a wonderful way to, to kind of leave it open-ended. And it's rhetorical in the sense that you can look at a management policy or you can look at a business policy or you can look at anything that you're doing in life and say is this really a good idea? Is this a wise use of the resources that we're about to use, the money that we're about to spend, and what's, what's the impact it's going to have?
0: So have you always been conservation-minded ever since you were a kid, or was there a certain experience you had that, that kind of changed your thinking that way? What's, what is your background when it comes to conservation?
1: Um, I mean, I grew up in the Amarillo, Texas, which is all private land. It's flat, very industrial, very agricultural. Um, I had a, had a great childhood, to be honest. Um, I had access to property and, and I've always loved, I've always loved land. Um, but, uh, I think in 2010, whenever we did the Continental Divide Trail, that was really the, the experience that made me fall in love, um. With, with conservation and with, with public lands especially, you know. I just find it amazing that people over 100 years ago were like, hey, guys, what we're doing to the planet is absolutely insane, and let's set aside millions of acres, you know, for future generations to be able to experience things that we have and for, you know, wildlife to thrive. And, uh, you know, like the balls that it took to do that back in the early 1900s were tremendous. And, you know, I don't see that a lot with today's politicians.
0: No, you definitely don't. Um, I, I love reading about and studying that period, you know, 1880 to up to World War One, And um, I feel like there, there's so many interesting folks that had a big role in, you know, starting this conservation movement. Are there any particular people that you admire from that time period or any particular books you've read that you would recommend to people about that period, things that have kind of helped shape your your thoughts on, on conservation.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite books is wilderness warrior. Oh
0: man. I love that one.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's one of my, my favorite books of all time. And, uh, I think my favorite, uh, conservationist, famous conservationist was, was Gifford Pinchot. Yep. You know, he was very much a realist. He's like, we can't preserve it all. You know, we use resources. Everybody uses resources. And you have to accept that. Um, and you have to, Use those resources and try to, you know, maintain the integrity and the biodiversity of the landscapes in which you take those resources. It's not like you can have, uh, you know, I mean, parks definitely have their place, but it's not like you can just make the entire planet a national park. You know, we have resources and we all eat food and drive vehicles.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Have you read the Big
1: Burn I have read *The Big Burn*. That's another fantastic book.
0: Yeah, that one really gets into uh, to Gifford's life. Um, I thought that was really interesting. I, the thing I, one of the things I remembered is that every morning he would wake up and he'd have his little assistant pour like three buckets of ice cold water on his head right when he woke up. <laughs> I was like, yeah, he's a tough guy, man. Yeah. Um, so back to conservation in general, other than the, you know, you're obviously passionate about the, the wild horses, but are there any other issues that you see being a, a big challenge to conservation, particular in, particularly in the West in the next 20 years?
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I think that the invasive plants, it's this silent, creeping enemy that's worse than ISIS. It's worse than any terrorist cell because it's going to impact landscapes far beyond your lifetime, my lifetime, or, you know, my great-grandchildren's lifetime is uh, you know, once you lose a landscape to a noxious weed or a plant or something like cheatgrass, you know, like you can't get it back. It's gone. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's the big, that, that's what I look at. Like the wild horse issue, like, yeah, horses are pretty. I like horses. I own a bunch. They're nice. I love wildlife. You know, I, I've devoted my life to, to conservation. Uh, but I don't connect with them on individuals. You know, I try to think of the management policy as like, how is this going to affect five years, 10 years, 100, 500 years down the line? And what we're seeing in the West right now, in these spaces that get overgrazed, whether it's by horses, whether it's by fire, or or disturbed I should say, whether it's overgrazing from horses, whether it's from fire or overgrazing by cattle, is you've got a handful of really, really nasty invasive species like Medusa head and cheatgrass that will come in and they will take over these really delicate desert ecosystems. And we're literally losing millions of acres in the American West, uh, to cheatgrass and medusahead especially. And, you know, when was the last time you saw a headline that, you know, cheatgrass is bad? Never. It's not sexy. It doesn't get pressed. Yep. And it's, 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 it's a threat that's bigger than anything that we're facing, uh, you know in the american west in in my opinion is uh is invasive plants
0: that's a good answer and i haven't heard that one from from other people so i think that's it's important for people to um to get that on the radar um one thing i wanted to ask you specifically because i know you're a pretty committed hunter um there's a there's a misconception i hear all the time particularly from pe- people back east who think that hunting and conservation are mutually exclusive, and that you can't be a hunter without being, uh, you know, <laughs> anti-conservation? And I, I'm obsessed with Theodore Roosevelt, and people always give him a hard time because he was such a avid hunter, and they they think you know bloodthirsty and all this, and they don't they don't think he could have possibly really loved nature. Could you talk a little bit about that, or your your theory on that? How you can be a big game hunter or any kind of hunter and still be a conservationist
1: sure um you know first i I do want to say you said a committed hunter um you know do do i hunt I, i do i that's mainly what i eat is is game that that i harvest yep but uh i think that the misconception that a lot of people have about hunting is that it's a that that the purpose of, of of going hunting is to is to kill a big animal to put it on your wall and there's there's no doubt that there's people out there that are like that yep and um, I am I am as anti trophy hunting as you know the biggest PETA fan like I think that if the only respect or the only reason why you hunt is to is to, is to kill an animal to like brag brag to your friends. Uh, uh-huh. That is terrible. We we live in a world in which we have changed everything, you know. And to, to say that oh, let's just let nature take care of itself like that's a very ignorant thing to say. Yep. Um, you know, like take for example in in Texas uh, where I'm from. You know, 50 years ago there was this species of fly. It's called the it was a bot fly, and it laid eggs, and they call it, and the legs, eggs would hatch into into, into worms, and they called them uh, the Texas screw worm. And they would land on the back of animals, and uh it would feast upon the flesh and lay the eggs, and then the eggs would, you know, consume the animal while it grew, and then it would fly off and do something else, and it would get infected, and a lot of animals died from it. Yep. And um some biologists and scientists in the 1950s developed a way to create screwworms that were infertile. And over the course of the next 10 years, they went and they spread these screwworms by helicopters and airplanes all over Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, and northern Mexico. And they completely eliminated the Texas screwworm. And in the process, they completely eliminated the controlling variable that kept white-tailed deer populations in check, mm-hmm. and white-tailed deer populations exploded like tremendously by the millions. And now Texas is amazingly overpopulated with white-tailed deer. You know, what do white-tailed deer eat? They eat browse. They eat uh, a lot of brush species. They eat a lot of forbs. They eat. Uh, a lot of young trees, and you have places in Texas where there's literally no new growth in the past fifty or sixty years of uh, of of plant, you know, rejuvenation. Yep. And you know, to say, oh, just just leave the deer alone and let nature take care of itself, like, no, it won't. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've created this mess, and if we want species like you know, oak trees and Texas kidney wood and, you know, other ice cream crops that deer really like to consume, then we need to control our deer population numbers. And like, yeah, in the West, we reintroduced wolves in Yellowstone and it worked out really well controlling those populations. It, 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 it definitely achieved the, uh, the goal of the biologists up there. But Texas is private land that's been split up into a bunch of forty-acre tracts. Like it's just not realistic there. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, do I do I hunt? Do I advocate hunting? Yes, I do. Um, But you know, I think it's a I think it's a a tool for land management. You know, I'm definitely not into the whole uh, macho like I love to kill animals and hang them on my wall kind of mentality.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense, and I I admire that that mindset when it comes to hunting. Um, So you mentioned earlier your film Pronghorn Revival. For people who haven't seen that yet, and again, I'll I'll have links to all this, but can you just give a little bit of overview about about that film and kind of the issues that you guys were presenting? Because I I thought it was just really well done, and I'm sure a lot of people around the country before seeing it didn't really have any understanding of of everything that, that you presented.
1: Um, Sure, yeah, so Pronghorn Revival is the story of a group of of Texas biologists that are trying to bring back historic populations of pronghorn antelope in West Texas, and they got a group of uh, landowners in West Texas to come together and, uh, you know, create this over 200,000 acre habitat for these pronghorn they made pronghorn friendly fences and and they went to another a different part of Texas where there was a surplus of population of, of pronghorn population and with helicopters and net guns they went out and they uh, net guns these helicopter or these pronghorn and caught them and then they transported them to this new, habitat for these pronghorn and released 112 with the hope that those pronghorn are gonna continue to repopulate and their numbers are going to grow and uh bring back this you know iconic species to to west texas
0: yeah i i thought i think the video was like six and a half minutes seven minutes and um it just great great cinematography great mission um i think it's going to really educate a lot of people um i know you've got a ton going on so i want to i want to kind of make sure i'm being respectful of your time here but i've been asking the folks i've been interviewing kind of some of the similar quick questions and i wanted to get i've got some really interesting answers so i wanted to run them by you um you mentioned wilderness warrior but are there any other books that are kind of your favorite books or books that you highly recommend to, to folks about the American West?
1: Yeah, I just read a great book. It was written by a guy named Kevin Fedarko, and it's called The Emerald Mile.
0: Oh, man, that was so good. I Isn't believe, it? Wasn't it? I thought it was just great. He
1: crushed it. Yeah, he really uh, did. Do you know that guy? I got to meet him one time. Really? Yeah, I was starstruck, so I couldn't like say anything. <laughs>
0: yeah I admire any writer, but especially a writer who can crank something out like that and um, just a just a wonderful book and it, it covers everything you know you learn about water policy in the West, the history of the West, an adventure story. I thought it's one of the best books I've read this year
1: yeah it's amazing it's amazing
0: um, any other ones that come to mind
1: mm. um I'm, gonna, I'm a huge fan of David Quammen. Mm-hmm. Uh, his book on island biology, I can't remember the name of it, but it's just about how delicate species are and how delicate ecosystems are. Uh, it's a study of, of island uh, biology. What's it called? Oh, the, the Flight of the Dodo. Oh, cool. Um, it's, it's a fantastic book. Yeah, I'll look that up.
0: That that sounds really interesting. I, I just read one that you might like. It's called The Naturalist, and it's just about Theodore Roosevelt's wor- work in, as a naturalist. And they talk a lot about his hunting and, and just kind of the history of um, museums, natural history museums in the U.S. Really, really good one. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm obsessed with that guy. Um, other than— your documentaries are there any that that you really admire and that you think everybody should see it can be about the american west or really any subject
1: um there is a really fantastic documentary so i I do a lot of stuff with veterans Mm -hmm. uh uh this summer i volunteered i I took a bunch of veterans on pack trips in yellowstone and, and in montana but uh, there's a documentary that's going to be coming out that I got to see in some film festivals. It's called Almost Sunrise. Mm-hmm. And it it really struck a chord with me. And it was about how, uh, you know, sometimes whenever life is just terrible for you and you think the world is against you, the best thing that you can do is just get up and go and just start walking and go find seclusion in the wilderness and in, and in physical activity. And, uh, you know, I, I, think that it's just a beautiful, beautiful documentary. It's so well done. That's an engaging story. It's called almost sunrise.
0: Okay. Good. I looked that up. How was working with the veterans? I'm sure that was just amazingly rewarding.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We had a great time. Um,
0: did I see your partner in that or the guy that started the, the organization was an ex-Navy SEAL? Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of hard hanging with him. I mean, you like go try to do stuff with a bunch of ex-Navy SEALs and you realize how incompetent you are. <laughs>
0: yeah. I went through a stage of being very obsessed with Navy SEALs and I had to quit reading books about them because it made me feel like such a loser.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You like get done at the end of the day and you're like, do you guys want to go hike on top of that mountain in the moonlight? <laughs> maybe the thunderstorm will come and it'll get better.
0: <laughs> I bet I bet you've got some stories from that. Um, I do. So you, you're obviously, you love the riding, fishing, hunting. I mean, do you have time for any other hobbies what, or, or or are you, you pretty filled up? Are there any other things you, you enjoy doing for fun when you're not quote working?
1: <laughs> um, I mean, man, I, I love to be outside. Um, i really like i like birding i love photography Mm -hmm. um i don't know why but i just get a a lot of satisfaction out of just spending time in the woods and and you know seeing the different animals that are out there and photographing them and, and learning about them and you know realizing how complex and rich the world that we live in is um But, uh, yeah, I mean, most of my stuff, I I love to tell a good story. You know, I think it's so satisfying to release a short film like Pronghorn Revival and see people learn something that they had no idea was going on and learn how important it is. And uh, I think that's one of the most satisfying things is is, is telling good stories that need to get told just because there's so much junk out there.
0: Yeah, there is. Um, Anybody with it's like my like my podcast. Anybody can do it. (laughs) Um, So, one question about your filmmaking and your photography: Do you have any formal training in that, or are you one hundred percent self-taught?
1: Well, Darren, unbranded, I got to spend five months with uh, Phil Baraboo and Corey Kazmarek, the guys that shot that. Yep, I got to learn from them, and they are just super great superhuman beings but they are so talented at filmmaking and everything from you know composition to lighting to really what they excel at is is, is storytelling and thinking big picture and looking for sound bites and um, so those those are my two like filmmaking heroes are, are those two guys so i got to learn from from uh, some of the very best in the industry, but I don't have any formal training.
0: Um, this is an interesting question that I like hearing the answer to. What's the craziest thing that's ever happened to you in the outdoors? And I'm sure you've got a long list, but if you had to tell one crazy story, what would it be?
1: Um, hmm. I got. It. My entire, uh, I worked for an outfitter in high school or not in high school, in college for a few years. And we had a massive, massive horse wreck that was started by this mule that just blew straight through the entire pack string. And he started to stampede mm-hmm. and this pack string was running down the trail and run this gnarly pass, and it, it runs into the next pack string, and they get caught up in the stampede, and they just completely lost their minds, just just terror in their eyes, and I was up in front of them, and I looked behind, and I had all of these uh, all of these guests with me, like five guests that were you know relying upon me for their safety and i just see this mob of you know dozens and dozens of horses of mules galloping down the trail and there's like stuff dragging and you know some of them are injured and i could tell my horses were starting to freak out so i just yell at them all to, to jump off so they all jumped off and we lost all of our horses i was the only person left of the horse wow and i take off after them and in front of everybody they were all counting on me the horse like it was this dink it was uh, was such a dink uh and we get up to this trail and there's this pannier sitting there and he refuses to go over it and i'm like trying to urge him across and he just bucks me off right into this tree in front of everybody and and i it was my day like i was gonna save the day and I, i failed so we ended up having to chase these horses for like 10, 12 miles before they finally stopped. And a bunch of them were injured and all this stuff. And there was just stuff strewn about everywhere. And I remember walking back down the trail and there was like bread and eggs and bacon and like cliff bars, just stuff strewn everywhere. And there was these two grizzly bears that were on the trail just walking up and down, just eating all the food that's falling out. And I was tired and exhausted and just sick and tired and didn't want to be dealing with grizzly bears. But that was, I think, I think, I think watching that entire stampede of, of crazy horses just sweep out my entire string of guests and run off. That was, that was, that was interesting.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure all those guests are telling the same story somewhere. When, if somebody ever asked them that question, that's, that's wild. Um, If you had to pick one location in the West, it could be a specific mountain, town, trail, lake, anywhere. Is there one place that sticks out that's particularly important to you or or has a special meaning to you? Your favorite place?
1: There is. Yeah, I know exactly where it is. Where is it? I'm not going to tell you. No!
0: (laughs) Well, tell me second place then.
1: (laughs) Colorado. Everybody should go visit Colorado. They're already here, man. everybody should continue to move to colorado it's they're the already best state here the here got like
0: three million more coming and guys like me from north carolina showing up and then everybody else is showing up there's lots of room in the
1: front range everybody should go there Yeah, lots of room
0: lots of water yeah everything's two million more people i, yeah. I, I think that's a good answer actually I, I respect that um so i got two more questions for you um if you could make a request of the people listening to this and it's it's just people who, who have a love of the American West, whether that's through mountain biking or hiking or ultra running or riding, hunting, uh, conservation, ranches, just people who have a love of the American West. Is there anything, a uh, uh, request you would make of them?
1: Uh, I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people don't think, don't think that they can make a difference. And before I sat on the Wars and Borough Advisory Board, I thought that too, uh, and I'm not saying that because I'm sitting on the board now. But we really take public comments seriously. Uh, before every meeting, we get you know between thirty and fifty public comments of you know emails that are sent to us, like, "Hey, I'm." John, I like to ride my bicycle and I like to do this and recreate on this landscape. And here's what I think about wild horses. Um, I mean, I, I think it's so important to not just post on Facebook, not just to go on Instagram or to do social media, to get like your friends acceptance and stuff, but reach out to your congressmen, reach out to advisory boards, to political officials, and, and send them cordial letters that explain why you believe something should be that way. Because, uh, I know for a fact, the advisory board listens, you know, mm-hmm. we can't do everything that everybody wants, but there's a lot of times where, you know, our policymakers, our politicians, they don't know the areas that you live in as, as well as you do. And it's important to get local feedback, um, so I, I think you know that's that's one thing is you know if you care about wild horses in the West or uh, rangelands in the West, you know, get engaged with different organizations and and let people know how you feel and in research why you feel that way and and try to see things from the other side too. Um, I also think that there's an amazing amount of lies and misinformation on land management on. Um, you know some of the a lot of the controversies in the west and I, and I think it's important to look at data from all different interest groups viewpoints rather than just the one that you feel is best for you because it makes you feel good about yourself um so yeah there you go. Yeah, that's
0: a great answer. So how can people connect with you? I know you've got some social media stuff. What's the best way for people to learn more about you and the work you're doing?
1: Um, yeah, I'm Ben Masters. I have a social media. Um, watch on Brandon on Netflix. You know, I try to respond to everybody that messages me on Facebook, unless it's like a crazy person emailing <laughs> me. Yeah. Uh, if that's the case, I usually tell them, good luck not falling off your unicorn. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, yeah, so you can find me on social media. You can find me, you know, online. And, uh, yeah, just reach out if you have any questions.
0: Well, thanks a lot for doing this. I know you got a ton going on, and good luck in the next few months with all your adventures. And, um, and good luck with everything.
1: Yeah, I think I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man,
0: no problem. So, there you have it, Ben Masters. I hope you enjoyed that. I think he's a really interesting guy, and it's amazing all that he's done before he's even 30 years old. Um, if you haven't already, you definitely need to check out Unbranded. It's on Netflix. You can buy a copy on the website. I've got links to all of that in the show notes, so, check that out. You should also check out Pronghorn Revival. It's just about six or seven minutes. Great film that I think you'll enjoy as well. Um, if you enjoyed this episode and if you enjoyed some of the other ones, I'd appreciate good review on iTunes. You can do all that from your phone. That would really help me out. Otherwise, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.